bad behavior is a virus. It either multiplies or it gets rejected. That's who we are as a company. And everybody understands that. Everybody, everybody gets it that, that it's just not, it's not acceptable and it's not tolerated. So on the flip side of it is you got to set up an environment where people that, that supports people, that encourages them to never stop learning, that encourages them to always do their best work, that is centered around the idea that our mission and our purpose <laughs> is to improve the lives of our employees, our, our residents, and our shareholders one experience at a time. Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is a rebroadcast of a conversation that I had back in February of 2018 with Keith Oden, the co-founder and president of Camden Property Trust. I have a dozen or so interviews from the Leading Voices archive that I tend to forward to people when I'm referring to wisdom from the show. And this conversation with Keith and the Camden story actually really encapsulates and mashes up some of my favorite themes. Here's my thesis, which you've heard me say it before in Leading Voices, and this conversation with Keith really crystallizes this. First, the modern REIT structure enabled a real estate company to move from a collection of assets to a single balance sheet approach to the business. That single balance sheet versus a collection of assets approach enabled long-term business platform thinking that let companies like Camden make investments both in technology and in people and culture that did not happen previously in the real estate business. Keith talks about two results from this. His example on the technology side was early adoption of rent optimization software. And on the people and really corporate ethos side of this was Camden's decision to go all in to become one of Fortune Magazine's America's best places to work. And when we did our interview, they'd placed for the 11th consecutive year an organizing principle, if you will, that defines that company, its success, and in my mind, it's lifted the bar for the overall industry. So that's why I wanted to share this episode with our listeners again and get the conversation to the top of your inbox. This interview was back in the second season of Leading Voices and was in our original style, which really started with storytelling around our guest's career. Starting with COVID two years ago, I've moved past that rhythm in the series to starting with the business topics, then moving into a shorter version career story, because then talking first about careers seemed tone deaf when I really wanted to hear how their company was dealing with the pandemic. I've kept that more topical rhythm on the show while still telling career stories, which has felt both more exciting and more authentic to my own curiosity in these conversations. As always, thanks to my teammates at Terra Search Partners who allow me the time and resources to produce leading voices. It's interesting, someone like Camden at Terra Search, we also have organizing principles around how we approach a business that might seem pretty standard out in the world. And it will echo the conversation with Keith. We approach executive search, what is essentially a transactional business, less from a deal-by-deal perspective, but with a long-term perspective of serving our clients and our candidates. As with Camden, ours is still the business of search and theirs is still the business of rental housing ownership. But mission and purpose and where you're coming from really changes the game. Keith, again, thanks for putting reality metrics in a great story around these perspectives. I hope that you're enjoying Leading Voices. Please share your favorite episode, maybe this one, with your colleagues and friends in the business. 
And if you're not already subscribing, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. And feel free to write me with comments, questions, and guest ideas at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. I hope that you enjoy this rebroadcast of my conversation with Keith Oden. So what I really want to talk about in the podcast today with you is about Camden and the culture at Camden and what makes Camden special. But before we get to that, I want to hear the Keith story and I want to hear the Camden story and then understand Camden better. So before, how did you get in business? Where did you grow up? And So I was born in Macomb, Mississippi, uh-huh. but I don't know anything about, I've never been back to Macomb, Mississippi. We were just, I think, just driving through. Okay. Um, have you just, out of curiosity, have you read Hillbilly Elegy? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to give you the, I'm going to give you the short version. If you replace the Appalachian Mountains mm-hmm. with rural, deep East Texas, and you replace the city in Ohio where they, where the, where the uh, mm-hmm. uh, author's parents moved to right. with Pasadena, Texas, that's my life story. Same story. I could have written that book. Unbelievable. And your parents who were not part of your growing up, were passing through Macomb? Macomb, Mississippi. My, my uh, father, who worked on a pipeline crew, and so literally they would, they were building a pipeline across the south, and right. every three or four weeks, you got to, they're moving. You know? so right. They were working their way across uh, Mississippi at the time, and that's when I was born in uh, Macomb, Mississippi. And then shortly thereafter, we ended up with my grandmother, and parents got divorced. Mother was she was not in the picture. Father died at a fairly early age. And then uh, my grandmother raised us from from small children. Wow, and her. that was all in Pasadena, Texas, which is a suburb here of Houston on the industrial side of the city. And uh, so I grew up in Pasadena, went to high school at uh, Sam Rayburn High School. Sam Rayburn High School? Sam Rayburn, Of yeah. course. I, I, was, I worked in his office building in D.C. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And when I got out of, as I was thinking of where I was going to, you know, try to go to college, it was a tricky thing because just we just didn't have, uh, my grandparents didn't have the resources to really assist in any meaningful way. But I ended up getting a couple of scholarships. And then the most cost-effective way I could accomplish this was I had a, uh, a great aunt and uncle, my grandmother's uh, brother. They had moved their family to Austin when they uh, they had a daughter that was exactly my age, same same school year. Mm-hmm. She was born uh, blind, and she, they moved to Austin so that they could enroll her in the uh, Texas School for the Blind, mm-hmm. which only there's only one campus in Austin. So, so she graduates the same year I graduate. She applies to the University of Texas and gets in. I wasn't even thinking about pl- applying to the University of Texas, but I decided to do that put in my application, got accepted. Couldn't figure out a way that I was gonna be able to make that work from a money standpoint. About that time, my grand uncle called and said, he had heard that I'd been accepted to the University of Texas, said, I'll make you a deal. Because I, I told I said, I'm not sure I can do it. I'm sure it's gonna work. I might have to go to UH or whatever. And he said, I'll make you a deal. If you will, Nancy's gonna go to the University of Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, she needs someone to transport her to and from school. If you'll do that, you can live with us rent-free and we'll, we'll buy the groceries and you mow the lawn and take Nancy to school. And I said, deal. That makes it work. So for three years, I did that. Then Sandy and I got married and you know we went on and then the, a different life started. But that's how I ended up at the University of Texas. So I graduated from the University of Texas. I went straight through with my and got my master's degree there. Master's in what? Master's in uh, MBA uh-huh. uh, with, a, with a 
concentration in real estate. Took every real estate course they had at the time. How come real estate? Just intrigued always with uh, the idea of creating and building things. Uh, wasn't really sure what property type at the time. Uh, I, I probably multifamily would have probably been fourth or fifth on my list. It wasn't a hot property type back then. No, it wasn't because the industry was in such was in such infancy, and there was, you know, in the real estate business, we, we all used to joke that. In innovation, you have early adopters and not and uh, late adopters. Well, in the real estate industry, you had non-adopters, exactly. I mean, which was the multifamily business. Uh-huh. And part of that, the big part of that, was just structural impediments. You just didn't have companies with the scale and geographic diversification to be able to invest in technology. I mean, merchant builders don't—that's not their thing. They they build buildings, they sell them to somebody, and they move on. You didn't have large entities that were uh, just financially capable of, of making investments in real estate. And that didn't change, by the way, that didn't change until 1993. When we went public in 1993, we were the second or third apartment company, but the wave that came beyond that, there were 34 companies that came public. That changed and the ability to access capital for on Wall Street and grow, get scale and size. So we went from $195 million total market cap in 1993 mm-hmm. to 11 billion today. So, but, but the ability to, to have large aggregations of, of uh, ownership and not just management, third party management, but ownership where you, it makes sense to invest in technology and you can make a financially good decision around, around investing in technology. That didn't happen until the advent of the modern read era in 1993. So companies, then grew in scale through mergers, they got bigger, and then they got to the point where they could invest in technology. And so, you know, that's kind of how the game changer in our, in, from my perspective in this uh-huh. industry was the aggregations of units. It's interesting. Two comments. One is in the 80s, I worked for a company called the National Housing Partnership, which was the first large-scale company. It was large-scale in terms of what it managed, and it created a very hierarchical army out in the field for its properties, but it was the old limited partnership days. Yep. One of the differences between the limited partnership days and the REIT days, I think, is you had one balance sheet versus 60 balance sheets. And when you had one balance sheet with the properties inside of it, that changed the dynamics and approach to then managing holistically. It, 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 that's true. That is an important distinction is one balance sheet. The other side of that is you had one ownership entity mm-hmm. making decisions for the entire portfolio, as opposed to... I have a hundred joint venture partners, each of which has a different tolerance for how much money they want to are willing to invest yeah. in something called technology. Yeah. Right. So you you just have everybody has their own view of what their strategy is with their apartments, and the LP ultimately is the money and calls the shots. Whereas whereas in a REIT, just like a C corp, there's there's only one group of management setting the strategy for all the assets at any given time. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier to say. We're going to take this enterprise there, uh, wherever there is, and then start and, and set about doing that in an LP environment. About the time you take one step forward, somebody says, let's take three steps back. And all the LPs are geniuses, you know. That's true. They all have a plan. <laughs> so that world was limiting in the ability of the multifamily industry to move forward and participate in a lot of these technological things. So all is a way of saying that you were interested in real estate in college and during your MBA, multifamily could have been on the list, but not on the radar screen. Probably not. So what got you from MBA into 
starting Camden? So I spent a couple of years out of school as a consultant with Deloitte, at the time Deloitte and Touche, in a management consulting role. The most significant engagement that I uh, worked on in that two-year period was with a Houston-based company called Weingarten Realty, uh-huh. which was their REIT. So they actually have been a REIT since 1985. They were a REIT at the time that I was engaged to as a management consultant. I literally, I had honestly had never heard the term REIT, never right. heard it used because it was just, it was, there were four in the country mm-hmm. and happened to be one of them was here. Well, so that, that was the introdu- my first introduction to, this is an interesting business model. The uh, Stanford and Drew Alexander are wonderful people and they would, they would ultimately play an important role in our ability to get our company public in 1993. But that, that intrigued me. I had a college roommate for one year in my uh, my senior year or my junior year prior to Sandy and I marrying, who was who had uh, gotten out of school, went to work at Century Development here in town. He was in their development group, a fellow named Mark Ellert, and he and I stayed in contact. And I was at Deloitte, and I I always told him my interest line in real estate. And so there was a position that came available at Century Development in their financial planning group. Mm-hmm. Rick happened to be the director of financial planning. Mark Ellert made the introduction. I came over and interviewed with Rick. He hired me. And it was a, actually a strange thing. I I was intrigued. I had a great interview. But the, the question I asked Rick at the end of the interview was, and he, he still reminds me of this, is this all sounds good, but... Mm-hmm. This is Rick Campo, your partner. Rick Campo, my partner, yeah, yeah, my business partner. So I said, this is interesting, but... How do you get past the fact that you are in a family business because it was run, owned and run by Ken Schnitzer and, and his two sons? Said, so how do you get past the fact that you're in a family business and your last name is not Schnitzer? How, are you, how do you ever expect to make any really serious money in this business? So he gave me an answer, and we end up I ended up going to work for him. So years and years later. I still maintain that I was right because ultimately we left Century Development, not not because of money at the time, but I don't see a path that ever could have happened within that entity because ultimately Century Development kind of broke up and, and broke apart in the in the uh, downturn in the 1980s. <laughs> I still don't see a path that would have put Rick where he thought he was going to be from the standpoint of the kind of company that he wanted to own and operate. Makes um, sense. So that's how we met. So Rick and I started working together at Century in 1980. We formed a, an ent- entity with them as our partner in 1984. And in 1986, uh, we bought them out. And then we, and about that time, Houston was in the process of trying to recover from the great, I mean, people talk about the great the recession. They don't understand, I mean, this child's play compared to what Houston, Texas was like in, uh, in the uh, early to mid-1980s. But Houston was in the, on the uh, verge of re- recovery. The business that we had started with Century as our partner was basically buying bankrupt high-rise condominiums that were built for sale. And then we figured out a way to put them in a holding pattern instead of just empty buildings. Uh-huh. We turned them into rental buildings. Uh-huh. And that's what we did. We did it. Century had three buildings that were in Houston in that condition. We ended up expanding that business to include probably 11 or 12 high-rise condominiums in the state of Texas, Dallas, Austin, and Houston. Rented them as apartments and put them in a holding pattern. And then ultimately, when the market recovered, went back to a sales mode mode and, and sold them out. So we basically sold our original business out one, t- one at a time as uh, individual condominiums. 
But you sold them out? Did you sell them out as, as apartment buildings or back into condo? Uh, as we sold them as individual condos. Uh-huh. So we, we set up sales program uh, programs and then sort of systematically over a period of time sold them out because the market had improved. And now there was actually a market for the sale of high-rise condominiums, which there wasn't in 1984 and 85 when we were starting our business. Understood. So I want to hear how that got to Camden, but I also just, you meet Rick and Rick becomes your business partner for 30 years, um, more. 35, 37. 35 years. Yeah. So that first moment, do you have any sense he, you're interviewing him? Was it a, a good interview? Is this like Simon meets Garfunkel? No, I, I, you know, Rick and I are very different. Uh-huh. And in, a, in the business context, it, it really actually helps things. Uh-huh. as opposed to having similarities. If you're uh, similar to your business partner, then ultimately you'll determine, both of you will determine that one of you is not needed. You know, it's just a different, same skill set. So, but as far as at the time, did I look forward and say, you know, this is a 40-year gig? No. But at every step along the way beyond that, you know, there are critical moments where you get to decide, do we go this way or direction or that direction? But there were really never any moments where we were having the conversation about, you want to go this direction and that's fine. And I want to go that direction. It was just collectively we need to determine this way or that way. So there's probably four, five or six of those over the years that ultimately we always came to the decision, wh- whichever way we chose that we wanted to go that way together. So uh-huh. interesting. So well, let's come back to that because okay. I'm curious what makes a marriage last from every perspective that that might suggest. Yeah. <laughs> So the two of you were buying these buildings, selling them back office condos after your holding pattern. Yep. So then how did you then decide to start an apartment company? So it's 1987. Houston looks like it's going to recover. The one thing that we knew because of our experience in running the high-rise buildings as rental properties was multifamily because they were running them as apartments. They were just having to be high-rises. So we had some expertise in that. We had some an infrastructure of people built around that business. And if you just think about in a recovery, uh-huh. what property type is most likely to recover first? It's the property type with the shortest term leases because uh-huh. you got all these embedded long-term leases in, in office and retail. And yet apartments at the time had six and nine month leases. Uh-huh. So if it really has turned and there's a recovery that's imminent, it just seemed to us that you'd want to own short-term leases, which meant apartments, which also dovetailed nicely with the fact that that's what we had been doing in a different format, but doing that for the last four or five years. So we literally decided that we were going to start buying apartments in Houston, got some high net worth individuals that shared our investment thesis of apartments are going to be good. And this is a good time to buy by the pound in Houston. And then we went to uh, a bank and got a, you know, guaranteed the bank note, got Mm -hmm. some equity that we raised and bought our first apartment community here in Houston, Sunset Lodge in 1987. And then over the course of oh, the next couple of years, we did that that formula worked, which is, you know, go find a deal, go find an equity partner, go put debt on it. And then along comes the RTC in 1989. And the game changed because all of those properties that were being held bankrupt SNLs were going to be disgorged by the federal government and they were selling big portfolios. So you couldn't, the the one-off asset game really didn't make any sense anymore. So we knew that we had to find, to continue playing the game, we needed to find a really large equity source. And we happened to get introduced to Louis Ranieri, who was the uh, Uh ex-Vice Chairman of Solomon Brothers. And Louis had bought an SNL here in Texas 
he was real keen on getting a real estate operating company, the, the, what he called his arms and legs in real estate, to take advantage of the of what he thought was going to be you know this this great renaissance, and he turned out to be right. So he we we made a deal with Lewis and sold him the lion's share of our company at the time, and then for that we got a huge access to a huge uh, equity stake uh, that he had raised in a blind pool. So we were able able to play the RTC game. And this was in, so that would have been in uh, 1990. We struck the deal with Lewis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over the course of the next two years, we bought uh, roughly 7,000 apartments or up. To, our portfolio grew to 7,000 apartments. And in 1992, Lewis had a vision that interest rates were going to skyrocket again uh-huh. and that was going to crush real estate values. And so he approached us and said, I'm, this has been great. We've made a ton of money, which we had for him and for the company. And uh, he said, I want to sell everything. I want to sell all the assets and, and you know, go a different direction. So we, by that time, we now have 7,000 apartments. We have probably 250 employees here in Houston managing the apartments and running a, a couple of other asset management businesses. And were you running, you were running other asset management businesses for him or others for, outside of apartments? For others, uh, primarily SNLs, you know, or um, uh, the remnants of the SNLs that uh, workouts, basically. Okay. We were still so doing workouts for people. Just so you know, my first time in Houston, I worked for the RTC. Oh, really? And I was doing a training in some office building here. That's fascinating, yeah. So those were crazy days. They were, um, sure were. So Lewis decides he wants to sell everything. And we had no interest in doing that because when we had built a company around this uh, aggregation of assets and we just we hired tons of people and we had made lots of commitments. And so we just didn't have any interest in selling. So we asked him, we asked Lewis, he said, would you give us six months to try to figure out a, a way to keep this portfolio together? And to his credit, he said, yeah, you know, well, that's that's fair. But just know that I'm going to exit stage left. So about this time. I think the first apartment company that came public was Wellsford. Uh-huh. It was Wellsford in 1992. Uh-huh. And they did it in something called a an REIT. And I went, ding, ding, ding. I've seen this before. Yeah. And so Rick literally, he bought a book. It's it was like Struck, Struck and LeVan, the New York law right. firm. Some guy wrote a book on the handbook of the modern read. So he read the book. And in the meantime... I had one of our employees who was a very close personal friend of Drew Alexander of Weingarten Realty right. and his contemporary. I said, I need to go. I need to re- re-engage with, with Drew and figure this out. So Mark's, uh, our, our, uh, ex, our employee, set up a meeting with Drew Alexander. I met, went and met with Drew and, and his dad. They were very nice and, and, and uh, accommodating Drew and his dad, Stanford. And they spent like almost an afternoon walking me through here's chapter and verse of how we did it, what you need to do. Here's the path. Uh-huh. Here's who you need to use. Here's what the structure needs to look like. Here are the pitfalls. So between Rick reading the book and me talking to reengaging with uh, Weingarten Realty from my Deloitte consulting days, we said, this is the way. And so from start to finish in six months in a, in a dead sprint, we put together an offering memorandum, and then the, the old, I guess the old uh, predecessor, Kidder Peabody, uh-huh. was our uh, investment banker. So in July of 1993, we took the company public. 
July of 1993. So you were like the fourth or fifth modern era. UDR had been there, the only one in they, the They actually were the predecessor. They were one of the four that Weinberg Realty right. that came sometime before, after 1985, but per, you know, prior to the current wave, the wave of, of right. 1983, 1994 class. Uh-huh. So we, I think we were the third or fourth multifamily REIT to come public. Uh-huh. So let's go back to then... A couple of subjects at, at once, intentionality and your partnership with Rick. So I'm curious about both. In intentionality, you said the words, gosh, we created a company, not just a collection of assets, and we didn't want to break it up. So when you start the REIT, what's, what, what are the goals? And then also, how did you navigate relationship with Rick at that point? Yeah. So we never, Rick and I, uh, the our relationship prior to the being a public company, uh-huh. we were partners. We were always 50-50 partners. Mm-hmm. We were always took the same money out of the business. We always had the same liability. Everything we did has everything we have ever done in our lives has been 50-50. Uh-huh. So when we were sitting down and, and trying to figure out structure in a REIT, uh-huh. well, somebody needs to be the chairman. Somebody needs to be the president. Right. We didn't even spend any time talking about that. Uh-huh. Because at the because the the conversation never addressed anything other than we're we're founding partners of this company and it's going to be fifty fifty. Uh-huh. So the the reality is is that Rick and I have been paid exactly the same from the from day one of our relationship, which goes back almost thirty seven years. Someone said he gets a penny more or something because he's chairman, or a dollar more. I don't know <laughs> what may, the number may, is. I so I don't want to. I don't want to hurt your ego about that. But. Yeah, he may, and it, and it's uh, and, and that's okay. So he's got thirty seven dollars more than me after thirty seven years. But no, it's it's that's just it, that was really never a discussion. Well, we did have to talk about, you know, we had, we only had to shoehorn our relationship, which worked fine, and we understood exactly how it right. worked, but. Explaining that to Wall Street bankers and potential investors, uh-huh. they always were very curious about it, but it didn't it didn't seem odd or curious to us ever, uh-huh. and it never has. And then I, we're going to talk about the company, but just in playing that out, and you said you're different, that means you probably like to do different things, and naturally one of you has strengths in some areas and love to do certain things and sure. the other the other way. So how did you split that up? So... If you think a good way to think about it would be uh, there's two maybe two dimensions. One would be inside facing and outside facing. Uh-huh. Rick is gifted in another life. He could be a politician, I suspect, except that I don't know if he could put up with all the, the baggage <laughs> that comes too with that. Right now. But uh, and that's his natural inclination. My natural inclination is is run the make sure the trains run on time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say, I mean, we, we cross over, we do, I can do and have done and do public speaking and do investor tours and analyst tours and do all the stuff that he does. Right. He probably gets net energy from that mm. and it probably takes net energy from me. Well uh, on the other hand, sitting in, you know, strategic planning meetings or uh, sitting in budget meetings or, you know, development pro forma meetings, I, I find that fascinating and it you know, probably brings energy to me and he probably mm-hmm. finds it, you know, give him a headache. So internally, mm-hmm. there's a there's a set of things that for a long time, it's and it's and it's evolved over the years. But for a long time, early in our relationship, people in our company knew whether that's a Rick question or a Keith question. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have to deal with this, you know, 
I got to go to Keith and then he's got to go talk to, he's got to go ask Rick because that's the way the chain of command works. It just never worked that way. We just never, you know, people understood. And they, right. plus we've had good fortune of having incredible tenure in our organization. So people have been around a long time. They get it, they understand. So it's a division of, it's more a division of the types of questions uh-huh. uh, for a long time in our organization. Rick would have been much more involved in external growth, whether it was acquisitions, developments, you know, real transactions versus process. Mm-hmm. That, that would be a good way to think of it. Now, that's again, that's evolved over the years. But for a long time, thinking of it as transactions, process, inside, outside would have been a useful construct. Fair deal. I'm trying to think of another place in Reetland where that kind of partnership exists. I'm not getting there. I, well, I, I don't think there I don't think there are any examples of two founding partners. Maybe Google. That are, Maybe the closest. Yeah, yeah that's, I, I, I suspect. I don't think in Reetland there there is a model that still exists with the two founding partners is still around. So let, let's maybe that the next question, just for our listeners to have context on the history of the company. This may be a Rick question for half of the history, which are what, what are the headlines in terms of you went through three or four mergers, you went through two big floods. Maybe kind of mm-hmm. walk us through that. But then the fat part of this conversation, and maybe the reason we're talking, becomes the internal stuff and processes and culture and really what distinguishes your company in so many ways. But but first, kind of what are the headlines of history? So headlines of history and, and my thinking would be we operated as a private company for almost 10 years before going public. So yeah. the IPO is a big, it's a watershed event because it opened up avenues for growth and capital raising that we had just never been able to avail. If you think about the amount of time that we would have spent raising capital as a private company versus what we spend today, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was probably 30 or 40% of our time. And one of the beauties of a public company model like uh, like our REIT is that I would be surprised if you added it all up, conference calls, investor meetings, analyst conversations, it's less than 5% of my time over the course of a year. That's a game changer just in terms of the intellectual capital of your company, what you spend your time on. The IPO was a big deal. There, the, We went through uh, three public-to-public mergers, each of which was very significant because it, it shaped the geography that we have today. We were basically a Texas-based company when we went public. We were in Houston, Austin, and Dallas, and we did the, the Paragon merger, which took us into Southeast, Southeast, um, to Florida and to the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. And then we did the Oasis merger, which took us into Las Vegas, Denver, and California. And then finally, we did the Summit merger, which kind of filled in some spots in the Southeast mm-hmm. um, and gave us South Florida exposure plus Atlanta. So, and that's basically our how we uh, cobbled together the geography of where we are today. So those three would all, th- all three be significant events in our company because they're just big undertakings. They have a lot of cultural implications of, of integration uh, of not only processes, but mm-hmm. style and culture. I, I would say another, another big one milestone event for us was when we figured out and a way to bring revenue management to the multifamily business. Revenue management's been around for a long time. I mean, you know, airlines, hotels, rental cars. The fact that we were still pricing our apartments individually with 160 community managers flying blind on any given day, what the pricing should be 10 years ago, mm-hmm. is crazy. 
but there wasn't the, the industry was had never been perceived as being big enough and forward thinking enough. So so nobody had ever made the investment to put together a revenue management product for multifamily. We actually had the intellectual capital and the idea around revenue management. We partnered with a software firm, uh, RealPage out of Dallas. Uh-huh. They, they took our thought process, intellectual capital, and turned it into a working model for revenue management, which we were the first company to roll it out through our entire portfolio. Today, every top tier apartment company has a revenue management system. I mean, RealPage has two or three competitors, but mm-hmm. I, I would think in terms of unit count, they're still the, they're still the largest. But uh, So that was a big deal because it... It not only solved one of the most nettlesome problems for all multifamily, which is how do you how do you price real time your apartments? Right. So for the first time now, we can provide our customers the ability to go online at eleven o'clock at night, get a, get a quote, sign up you know sign up for a lease. You couldn't possibly do that unless you had a revenue management model that was real time pricing those assets. It's interesting when you thought of it. I I didn't go there because when you're talking about this, I'm thinking of what it does at the site level for the employee and changes the dynamic there, which we'll get to. At the time, you also probably couldn't imagine that someone would be running an apartment from their kitchen table at 11 at night using that revenue management model. Well, by you know, ten years ago, the internet was a thing, and, right. and you know, so everybody was moved, had already moved a lot of their platform to the internet, and our customers clearly had moved on to the internet, and it probably frustrated them to no end to not be able to have visibility. You know, why can't right. I? I can do anything. Buy Amazon. I can, well I can buy apartment. a car online. I can do anything, and right. I can't rent an apartment online. Uh-huh. And you couldn't because you didn't. If you didn't have a real time pricing tool. You can't do data. You can't do inquiry, and you can't just, you know generate quotes. So that was a big deal because it was a it was a watershed moment for solving a nettlesome problem with intellectual capital that was industry driven. You know, not not someone out from the outside saying we can help you do this. And then that became the model for a whole lot of other technological innovations that we that we've been part of over the years. But that to me is a was a was a game changer. And then the other one that I would uh, I would say just from our company standpoint was the the first year that we appeared on Fortune magazine's list of 100 best companies to work for was 2007 and we've been on that list for uh, 11 straight years. Big deal because uh, no real estate investment trust has ever been on that on Fortune's list. We're the only company that's ever been on the list and we've been there 11 consecutive years. But it tells you to me it's the benchmark of how far this industry has come from two th- from 1993 when we were as an industry we were largely kind of aggregations of apartment buildings with some loose affiliation right. management to an organization that is 11 years straight one of the best 100 companies to work for in the country uh-huh. that's an astonishing Trans- transformation of the of the industry. So, a couple of comments and questions on that. One is, I, I read through the list before I came to the meeting. There are other real estate companies on there, there are, be, and there may be REITs, but they're all uh, they're all hotel. They're not hospitality REITs, but there are there are hospitality maybe companies. One for sure. was I, maybe yeah. it was Hilton. I work. Yeah. Uh, this yeah. is technical. Doesn't yeah. matter. But and, and it's interesting in the hospitality industry, they better. I'm staying at a hotel near here today. That's from a company not on the list, and I'm not surprised it isn't. <laughs> but when you go to a hotel, you want to get that feeling. Sure. 
And same in the apartment business. It's not a surprise that you would want to go there. So comment one, comment two is um, that you say, well, in 2007, we appeared on the list. That's a passive word, appeared. Uh, but you didn't appear. You yeah. you went to go get that. So how did you, what was the intention to do that and why? So the, the intention to do that was uh, started at a, in 2005, we had a leadership meeting. We had all of our, all of our senior officers there. And it was a very interesting meeting. The two facilitators, and we, we barely have rarely used outside facilitators, and this, this reminds me of why, but the two outside facilitators were awful and it involved a lot of screaming and yelling and it was, just, it was very antithetical to our culture. We did a very poor job of screening what was gonna go on in the meeting. Uh -huh. but, the, but the one thing that came out of it at the end of the meeting as we were all trying to figure out how do we make this, you know, how do we get out of this room without killing somebody or each other um, or the meetings organizers. The one thing that came out of it was the, the facilitator talked about the importance of taking a stand, mm -hmm. which is not a, not making a, a promise and not saying a hope or a wish or a, I'm, I think I can, I'm gonna, but taking a stand, right. which means that from that point forward, you have to act as if it has already occurred. So he asked every one of our executives to go up and, and you had to write your stand down and then you had to go up in front of the group and present it. And we'd, had, we'd been having some conversations internally about, you know, Houston's best place to work list that we were on, et cetera. And I walked up there with it. I wrote it down and without a lot of great thought. And I said, my stand was in five years, Camden Property Trust will be recognized as one of the best companies to work for in this country. Uh -huh. Now, when I made that statement, I was blissfully ignorant about the rarefied air that it, it that exists, not just to be just to be on the list. Right. I mean, this is an astonishing. Anywhere in the hundred. Anywhere in the hundred. I'd take, I mean, 99 would be great. Cindy Sharinghouse and our HR director would throw something at me if I, if she heard me say that. But I would. It, it's it's an incredible thing. So we made that stand, and then the next year, we uh, applied for Fortune's list, and we didn't make the list. And so we we went back to the drawing board and put our application in the second year. And the second year was would have been 2007, and we made the list in, at number 50. And it was one of the most joyous and celebrated days of this company's history. So I, I say that is a, a defining moment for us. But it was intentional in the sense that we felt like we had a great company and a great culture. We just had to, you know, figure out a way to go through the process. Because if you don't have, there's no amount of spend, no amount of marketing, no amount of glossy, you know, presentations that will ever get you within a hundred miles of being on that list. If in fact, you're not a great culture and a great company. Most people don't realize that two thirds of the score. So it's, it's two thirds, one thirds, two thirds comes from surveys, uh, randomly selected employee, uh, third-party administered surveys of your employees. We never get to see anything other than the top-level results, nor does any other company. That's two-thirds of your score. If you don't have, if your people are not jump out of their seat crazy about the company that they work for uh -huh. and are willing to say so in a survey, you got no chance. Right. So last year on our uh, on our survey results last year, it's about 60 questions in the survey. It's pretty, pretty, uh, a comprehensive cultural survey, and this is 1,300 of our employees out of 1,800. So this is not you know 50 people. 1,300 filled this out. The, the last question 
that's asked on the survey is, in light of everything else we've asked you, all these other 58 subpart questions, right. do you consider this company to be a great place to work? 94% of our employees answer that question, yeah, yes. Agree or strongly agree. That's unbelievable. I mean, I, I, there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of places you, you can't get 94% of the people to agree that today is Tuesday. Yeah, of course. And so it's just, uh, that's, that's, the, that's how narrow the path is. But it starts with just be a great company. And uh-huh. if you are, and if your people are crazy about working with you, yeah, you might have a chance. So this doesn't come from in two years you're going to get there because the wanting to be a great company had been there from the beginning in some way, I think. Yeah, and, so and, and being a great company. I mean, we we were a great company and we had a great culture, and we've been it's something we've been working on for at that time in uh, in oh seven twenty five years. Uh-huh. So and and also that comes from the crucible of the Schnitzer company that you yep. were with. That the culture was just transactional and dog eat dog. Correct. And and talk about that balance between transactional dog eat dog and have a great culture and. Words come to me because I'm an idealist about these things. That nice guys finish last, so we're, <laughs> here you're finishing. It looks pretty good. Yeah. But how do you take that stance, and where do you go with that? And contrast those two, both of which can have great outcomes financially. Yep, they can. But I think one's more durable than the other. Uh-huh. Um, if you build a company that's based on respect, credibility, and trust, and you are just unyielding about that is who we are as a company. It's why we came up with our nine company values that are not just something that hangs on the wall, but they're they're a way. They're, they're basically behaviors, mm-hmm. and we did this is we did this twenty five you know twenty years ago. But it's basically the rules of the road, and everybody understands them. They're expected to live by them, and and they're expected to hold one another in our company accountable for mm-hmm. if you're not acting in concert with one of our values. It's it's just setting up an environment where people can do their best work, where they're rewarded for it, both financially and emotionally, they're rewarded for doing their best work, and then just being uh, un- unyielding in terms of good and bad behavior. And so our, our, our company is it's sort of like the organism that rejects the virus. Right. Bad behavior is a virus. It either multiplies or it gets rejected. That's who we are as a company, and everybody understands that. Everybody, everybody gets it that that it's just not, it's not acceptable and it's not tolerated. So, on the flip side of it is, you got to set up an environment where people that that supports people, that encourages them to never stop learning, that encourages them to always do their best work, that is centered around the idea that our mission and our purpose <laughs> is to improve the lives of our employees, our our residents and our shareholders one experience at a time. And that is literally captured as, that's Camden's why. Mm-hmm. You may be probably familiar with Simon Sinek's book, as you're a reader, uh-huh. which is uh, Start With Why. And uh, and so that's what we do as a company. And everyone's, and people are held accountable for it. And, and once, you, once you get a critical mass of people who understand the vision and are completely bought into it, it it's just self-perpetuating. People who encounter this culture want to be a part of it, which explains why the average tenure of our uh, officers in this company, VPs and up, is 19 years. Hmm. It's the average. It's interesting. I was with a different 
company some couple years ago, and they said how great the tenure is. That cuts both ways sometimes because yep. it makes some resistance to change. And in their case, it was all white guys over 55, yeah. <laughs> virtually. Yeah, so fortunately, we have uh, in that group that and our senior executives, right. uh, it's 40% female. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we just have a, a great representation of right. of everybody who's in our movie, uh, in the Camden movie. So, and don't, you know, you, you also have to parse that a little bit. 19 years, that doesn't mean that they're in their current role. They just, right, they, of course. They started it. You say the Camden movies. Do you, do you call this a movie? There is no, a movie, no, no, and, no, no, and no. we're going to put some links on our website yeah. in this and the show notes of this yeah. into some videos I got to watch, which were wild. I mean, the people just excited and thrilled. I watched the uh, uh, Hug Me Maybe. Oh, sure. That was like really fun, and there was another dance video. Got a feeling. Yeah, it's it's funny you mentioned that because I, I actually both of those. We're celebrating our 25th anniversary as a public company. Right. So our, we have our leadership meeting uh, later this week, Thursday and Friday. And then we have our ACE Awards program, which is basically our on, recognition of on-site uh, on awards for performance. We have 15 cities, and we do the same same presentation at 15 cities. Rick and I split, split the map up and do half and half. And then in our we have a management conference, once, and that's upcoming. So mm -hmm. we, that kicks off here in two weeks. So there's going to be a piece of that that's a celebration of our 25th uh, anniversary. So we've been doing skits for 25 years. We have video of a skit in 1994 that we're going to include in this presentation. But I literally spent the last two weekends going through 150 different skits, presentations, uh -huh. to try to cull it down to the best of. Uh -huh. Both of those made the list. So I guess you, you're, 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 you're fishing in the right pond. If you're, uh. <laughs> well, and how do you do that? It's, it's funny because I think you get dressed up and you kind of, and, and I'm such a stick in the mud. If I had to get dressed up and do fun dancing in front of 3,000 people, I couldn't do it. It's not in me. <laughs> I surprised. can tell it's in you. You'd be surprised. It's not, it's not, doesn't come, trust me, doing some of the stuff we do does not come naturally to me. It comes more naturally to Rick. I can see Which that. explains why he's been Dolly Parton, he's been Miley Cyrus <laughs> over the years. He was Lady Gaga last year. Good friend. The, doing the Super Bowl uh, wow. skits in our world. It's not a spectator sport. Right, just that's why. Sport. You got to be. You got to be able to be, be in the game. If it's part of the culture that you want to endure, then you need to make. You need to model the, the message. So let's translate that culture thought to performance side of the okay. equation. And how does does that pay off in performance? Or does it pay off and do you get to feel good? So if you take the the companies that are on Fortune's 100 list, mm -hmm. and the the list has been around for 20 years. And they do this this calculation every year. If you took the companies, the publicly traded companies that are on the list, and the only decision rule that you had for investing was every year I'm going to rebalance my portfolio to be who's on the list. I'm going to own the companies as a basket of stocks, the publicly traded companies. Some you know come and go off the list, get new right. people. You, but for that year, if you just said I'm buying these three and selling those seven, mm -hmm. and you did that for 20 years, mm -hmm. your total shareholder return would be about 13. percent If you if you bought the S and P 500 mm -hmm. in the first year that they came out with Fortune came out with the list, mm -hmm. your annualized return would be about 9.1 percent, 400 basis points better by knowing nothing 
other than buying those the company companies. was on the list. So that's a, I, I want to be in that good. company, but how has that done for you? And how's that done for you compared to your peer group in a known sector? Yeah. So, so our, our total shareholder return, Camden's total shareholder return since the IPO, uh-huh. annual shareholder return is 13% for 25 years. That's pretty good. How about the rest of the apartment sector? Do you know? Well, the, the of the companies that are left, yeah. you know, our 20 year return is on par with equity residential. It's on par with uh, Avalon Bay. Essex has been the clear out performer in the multifamily space for the last 15 years. But, you know, of the other 34 companies, I'm not really sure. My guess is that, that they would have had much less, a much less return because they ended up being part of the merger that reshaped the industry. But right. uh, for the last two years, uh-huh. Camden's been the number one shareholder return in the multifamily space. Uh-huh. 13% this year, about seven or eight percent last year but we were number one both years uh-huh. so it's not just about d- does it make you feel good to work at a great right. place it does it's better and you may not want you may not be willing to do it otherwise given who you are yeah i, I don't I, I don't really have any interest in so this is this is the kind of this is the kind of company that i would want to work for they're hard to find it's a star really hard to find it's it's interesting because you know i highly respect and do work with your competitors as well so i love these other companies. They're not on this list. They're on different lists. They run wonderful businesses. They do. Um, you have this benchmark that's a true North benchmark, though. It is, it is. I think it's more consistent a message. Also, you differentiate with the other large companies in your markets because they're more heavily weighted to the coasts. They are. They are. We have a very different footprint. And, and, and by the way, when we talk about... Uh, when I talk about being on the list, I, and I've just done this numerous times publicly, mm-hmm. it, it's it, that's an honor that we claim on behalf of all of the other real estate investment trusts because mm-hmm. they've all, I mean, whether they're on the list or not, where right. they were well, 20 so. years a day versus where they are today, it's unrecognizable mm-hmm. in, in technology and customer service. And uh, so it's just, it's been, it's been great for the entire industry. Yeah. So talk about the industry a little bit and... Talk about some of the challenges in the industry, and and we've talked a bunch about technology. I read a report from the industry's trade group NMHC like the, two weeks ago that said, "Hey, headline, we're so far behind the curve technology-wise." Mm-hmm. What, what what does that mean, and what are the challenges, and what's coming? So, if you think about, we talked a little bit earlier about uh, early adopters and late right. adopters. So the game, I don't think the that, that we engaged as an industry, the technology game, until probably so public in 93, maybe sometime around the turn of the century, man, mm-hmm. where companies had been around long enough, grown enough to where they had the resources to even think about how do we start driving technology down to our customers right. and, the, and the benefits of technology. So I think we've been at this in earnest for 15 years. Mm-hmm. We had so much ground to make up. I mean, we because we were so far behind. I mean, something as as mundane and or, or as as uh, uh, pedestrian as revenue management, we didn't even have that. So we we've made amazing progress. But I think they're right. I think NMHC is correct. And and when you think about where we are relative to where some other industries are, whether relative to where our our customers are, I tell people all the time, and and that that it our mission is not to be the best multifamily company in our little submarket, 
because the reality is the lowest common denominator among non-public companies, and then maybe there's a handful of private companies that are that you would put in that category, Bazudo and, and mm-hmm. a handful of others. But other than that, mm-hmm. we compete with you know third-party managed, not right. technologically driven companies. And so if if that's your bar, and you think that's who your competition is, you're crazy. Our competi- our competition is companies that are providing a customer experience to our residents that they now that's their expectation and you know they so you can say well we're just gonna if you're one of our competitors they're just going to be disappointed well yeah they're gonna be disappointed and they're going to leave if they can find a place where they can live that also provides them an experience that is their is what they encounter day in and day out with other customer experience providers whether it's housing whether it's Uber, whether it's Amazon, that's what the that's where we're after. Now we're never going to be Amazon. We're never going to be Uber. That's not that's not the thing. But what we have to be able to do is where we can, mm-hmm. we have to put technology in a play in a way that people can say, "You've made my living experience better because of this." I mean, things like mobile maintenance. I mean, it, again, these are pretty low. That's pretty free. easy. I want I don't want to call someone to tell them the light bulbs are out in my hallway. I just want to push a button. Push a button. And now we have the ability, every every one of our maintenance staff, all system-wide, smartphone, work order comes in, goes straight to their phone, and if they happen to be out on property uh-huh. and the person three doors down just sent in a, a work order, then you knock on the door and you fix it. But the ability to do that is so foreign to our customers in their living experience in apartments uh-huh. that they literally are, they, I mean, they are taken aback. Because, I mean, they've lived in apartments for years. They understand. I mean, the game is you send it, email, somebody in the office gets it. They hand it to somebody. They put it on the list. And then three days later, somebody says, I'm here to fix your garbage disposal. But that's what they've been trained, that this is the only experience that's available. So when you can, if you can change that and you can kind of reset the bar on what the customer can experience, it's a, it's a game changer. So we, we just have to keep pushing. We're not where we need to be on technology, but we're so much better than we were five, 10 years ago. And a company like yours, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here. Well, there, we have, you know, among the public companies, there's a lot of good uh, work being done around innovation. A couple of other questions. Sure. Um, you can't talk about the apartment business today without talking about affordability. Yep. And gosh, I've been in real estate for almost 40 years. I don't want to say, I want to say that carefully. <laughs> and most of it in housing. Yeah. And housing has never been a front page story until now, and it is. Yeah. And you're in the apartment business. So how, what, what does that mean? And how do you see us as an industry addressing these I, topics? I think it's going to be the, it's probably going to be the, the headline issue for our industry for years to come because there is not a silver bullet. There just isn't, not only is it not getting better, Matt, it's getting worse because costs are at levels that we've never seen before and going up. Right. Labor costs are at levels we haven't seen and availability of labor. The shortage of labor is a huge story in our industry. So whatever whatever the physical cost to construction challenge was a year ago, two years ago, mm-hmm. it's worse today and it'll be worse a year from now. There's just, it's just inevitable. So then, the, then you go back and you say, okay, well, how can you... Uh, when you when you think about affordable housing, with, if you built the most cost-effective building with the least expensive materials that you could, you know, honorably employ in the right. in, in the construction, you still are not going to have a, a housing 
a, a unit of workforce housing, new construction that is affordable to the, the to the people who are in the the greatest need of quote affordable housing. The the numbers just don't work. So you have so so now you're having all these conversations in states like California where the knee jerk response is if rents are too high then we need rent control, which is exactly the opposite from the industry's perspective of what you need because that will only further limit the number of homes that are being built. We do have a supply demand problem yeah. essentially. Yeah. So so it it is a uh, so that's not the answer. Ultimately, it's we have to get as a as a country and as a an industry to a conversation about how do we do a private public partnership to do affordable housing. There has to be a component, a, a sub, call it what you want, tax credit, subsidy, there has to be a component of that. The, the numbers and the math around building apartments in today's world, re- regardless of what land cost is, just don't work as far as being affordable when you think about uh, workforce housing. It just doesn't work. And there's affordable with low-income people, and yep. then there's affordable for workforce, which one would call teachers yep. and first responders. And gosh, if you're a first responder and you have to live an hour and a half outside of town in order to get to work. That's not that's not a lifestyle that we should support. It's tough and so what ends up happening is two thing two two choices people have to make. In order to maintain their proximity, whether it's teacher, fireman, you have to move down in quality. You gotta move to a if you're in a a, a apartment, you gotta move to a B. If you're in a B, you gotta move to a C. The other is as you, as you mentioned is you gotta move further away. And that just that just further complicates the the life style and livability of a teacher or, or a, a, a a police officer who now has to live in California. You're an hour and a half away because that's the that's where you have an affordable uh, a, a place that you can afford. The challenge is is that 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 is what it is. So building more housing at today's cost will not solve that problem. Mm-hmm. There's no word trickle down. You could build new housing, maybe not at the ultra luxury, not A plus, but you build an A minus or B plus, and then have that make available the Bs and the Cs. Yes, except that the the starting po- point for the the trickle down, the increase in construction so costs, has outstripped even the increase in the rents. So I think there's a uh, in 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 these real housing shortage areas, the Californians of the world in the coastal markets, it's going to be a huge challenge. Well, true. Multifaceted problem, which we'll leave as a conundrum in this conversation, unfortunately. Um, two last questions. If you had a few words of advice for a an executive in the real estate business uh, trying to make their company great and going to the next level, what would it be? So I would say focus on, if you just sort of make it your mission to improve people's lives. It, it just that's your mission and you should you should measure success by that how many people's lives and to what degree have you improved through their connection and contact with your company and start there and it's easy and you see where are your what are your constituencies you need to take care of your your if you if you put a smile on the faces of your employees there's a chance that they may put a smile on your customers faces without it there's almost no chance and if you get happy 
if you have happy uh, employees and happy customers, the the it'll it'll work out that your shareholders will be happy, and, and it's we've certainly proven that to be true for 25 years. Fair deal. It's funny in, in our business, and this gets back to our prior conversation of transactions versus culture. Yes, we do a search. We talk to 200 people in every search. One person kind of gets the job, so we rattle 200 people. Mm-hmm. And one person kind of wins or the goal is right there. And if you think about the goal, then that's the wrong outcome in large part because my company, we try to think about, we touch 200 people. How do we make them our friends? And we're asking them a favor, which is their intellectual capital and their networking. How do we make them feel good about us and maybe teach them something and help them along the way? And it's What's the goal? But what's the other goal? I always find the other goal more interesting. Yeah, and and I, I I've never thought about it that way. But but I, that's the if I were in your shoes on your side of the table, that's probably the only thing I would ever talk about is how did the non-winners feel totally after true. the process is complete. We talk about it every yeah, day. It's really interesting. You got to the same place. So last question: um, If you had the same short conversation with a young person getting into the real estate business. And they're going, what, 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 where, how? I'm going to give you uh, a piece of advice that I actually got from my college roommate's father, who was an executive with Exxon. He happened to be a chemical engineer. And his advice was, whatever company you go to work for, make sure that, that whatever you do is what they do. In other words, if you're an accountant, don't go to work. Don't go to work for an oil and gas company. Go to work for for one of the big uh, big four CPA firms. So my advice would be, if you want to be in the real estate business, go to work for a real estate company. Don't go to work in the real estate division of a uh, uh, oil and gas company. Fair too. So, great advice. Hey, um, Keith, thank you very much. It's been a delightful conversation. I've enjoyed it, and uh, our listeners will learn a lot. Thank you. Take care. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode of Leading Voices. If you like the episode, please rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and feel free to comment via our website, leadingvoicespodcast.com, or to me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.